This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome, Art Curious listeners, to another bonus interview, this time with author Annie Cohen-Salal. The genre of biography and the phrase reads like a pulsing thriller don't often go hand in hand, especially when the subject of the biography in question is one of our best-known modern artists, a man whose life and legacy must surely by this point contain no surprises. Yet when Annie Cohen Solal's book, Picasso the Foreigner, debuted, that's exactly how the New York Times described it, originally only available in French. Now the English translation of the book has arrived, coinciding with the 50th anniversary of Picasso's death. Tracing Picasso's fraught relationship with his adopted homeland of France across seven decades, Cohen Solal offers us a radical, thought-provoking, and yes, undeniably thrilling, reintroduction to the artist. Author of widely translated biographies of Jean-Paul Sartre, Leo Castelli, and Mark Rothko, Cohen Salal met her new subject, foreigner number 74,664, in the archives of the Paris police. Through her extensive use of long understudied sources, including the case file that begun with an accusation of anarchy in 1901, grew steadily over the next decades. We encounter him as well an artist perennially under police surveillance, ignored by cultural officialdom even as he came to lead the Cubist avant-garde and rejected by a French state that, on the eve of the Nazi occupation, denied him citizenship. And Cohen Solal shows us Picasso's work as French law enforcement and the Académie de Beaux-Arts alike interpreted it as damning evidence of the artist's otherness. Cohen Salal's book looks anew not just at the artist, but at the nation that, despite never becoming a citizen, Picasso dynamized and transformed. As, alongside France, the U.S. grapples with questions of immigration and faces mounting xenophobia, this dual portrait of a foreigner and his chosen country feels both revelatory and unsettlingly familiar. Annie Cohen Salal joined me recently on Zoom to share all about this look at an iconic artist shared in this wonderfully unfamiliar new way. This is a great read, big and super insightful, and I am sure you will enjoy it. So here we go. Annie Cohen Salal, welcome to Art Curious. Nice to see you, Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited about this English translation of Picasso the Foreigner. I have had a copy, pre-publication copy in my hands for a few months now, and then I just got the final version not that long ago. And I actually want to begin our conversation today with the prologue of your book, because you talk about being in an archival setting and introduced to a suspect. Could you tell us about this suspect and how you came about his information? Yes, I decided to try and understand what was the status of Picasso when he arrived in Paris in October 1900. He was hardly 18 years old for a painting at the Universal Exhibition. And how he felt when we all know that inside of himself, he knew he was a genius already at age 14. He had gone to the Prado and had 
copied a portrait of Philip IV by Velasquez. And his portrait, his copy of Velasquez was better than the original. So he knew how talented he was. So he arrives in Paris because he has a piece at the Universal Exhibition, which is very rare at that age. But Paris is then the capital of the world, of Europe. It's a very modern city. It has this exhibition which will last for, which will last for one whole year, inviting 50 million people, five zero. And when the at the time when the French are extremely proud of themselves, when mm -hmm. the president of the Republic says, we are here to celebrate the genius of France. But Picasso is also a genius. And he's a genius with a plurality of cultures, with many interests. And in fact, he comes into Paris through a very narrow door because he doesn't know French. He doesn't know the codes. And he arrives with a bunch of friends who happen to be anarchists from Catalan anarchists. And he lives in Montmartre, which is basically the slums of the city. Right. So this, this absolute genius who's going to become the artist of the 20th century and maybe of all times starts his first decades in France under terrible auspices because he has no other choice. He has no other choice but being escorted into Paris by Catalan friends because he lives in Barcelona. And Catalans are suspected of being anarchists. So as soon as Picasso starts working with them or living with them, there are informants from the French police who are watching him and who are writing papers on him. So as soon as his name is on the papers, but you know, in a brilliant way, because he has a show less than a year later in 1901. And the show says that he's the new genius. Nevertheless, the police officer who runs Montmartre recognizes the name that informants have given him. So he writes uh, the first police file against Picasso, naming him, labeling him an anarchist. And this file is like, you know, bullet on your, on, on, you know, um, how can I say, it, it's a trap, it's a total trap. So he had no other choice but come into Paris through the Catalans. So the Catalans gave him the key to Paris, but by the same time, it's a trap. Being filed by the police is not only painful, but, but annoying, because when much, much, much later, Picasso would need to become French, he files for naturalization, and this is precisely that file of 1901, which will prevent him from becoming French. You see? So it's it's a very, very moving, it was a very moving discovery for me because, you know, I opened this file and I had this innumerable mentions of Picasso going to the police station, give his fingerprints, the pictures where he looks like an outlaw, you know, and the constant mouthing against him, describing his lack of patriotism, describing his interest for foreign money, describing his wealth, describing, you know. So France is then a country that is completely full of tensions, political tensions, social tensions. <laughs> Basically, he is perceived by the police, which is very, very strong, as a foreigner, an anarchist, and then he's perceived by the Academy of Fine Arts as an avant-garde artist. So there are two major institutions in France at the time. One is the police, the most sophisticated police in the world, 
And the other one is the Academy of Fine Arts, which thinks of only one thing, French good taste coming from Louis XIV and the Versailles Castle. So Picasso doesn't fit. (laughs) In those two categories, Picasso doesn't fit. You know, he is altogether multicultural. He Mm -hmm. is revolutionary. He he is dynamic. So he doesn't fit in this centralized country uh, with this idea of purity, national purity. He simply doesn't fit. And for more than almost 50 years, there will be no work of Picasso in French Museum, which is which is unthinkable, you know. Right. Oh, my goodness. I want to ask you, you talk about coming across this as a revelation of seeing him in this light as specifically a foreigner who has been treated, I think, pretty unfairly, especially by the police. How did this idea for this book come about? What inspired you to tackle this idea of him specifically as a foreigner? Because I have been working on the art world for more than 35 years. I have many, many books on on the art world. I didn't step into the art world as an art historian, but as a social historian. When I met Leo Castelli, when I arrived in this country to become the French cultural counselor. And so my approach of the art world is a little different from art historians. Art historians do an extremely important job, which is extremely useful. But sometimes it remains away, a little sometimes too far away from uh, everyday realities or social realities or political realities. And I ground my idea in the fact that I want to know what the artist is going through and what is the relationship between what he produces, the art he produces, and his uh, being in the world, you see, his everyday life. So I think there's an extremely important connections, you know, and especially for Picasso, you can see it right away. So I I try to, to approach at the same time, the feeling of the artist as a social, as, as a citizen and the production that he comes, that comes out of his studio. I completely agree with you. I I do, as an art historian myself, I, of course, think that we do excellent work. But I agree because Picasso and every artist is a a full human being. And so being able to consider them and their life and their work from these different perspectives, I think, is extremely necessary. So I am thankful that you aren't coming to this from that traditional art historical perspective. You're bringing a new viewpoint, which I think is really interesting. I want to ask you, what I love about this book is that you're trailing really Picasso for the entirety, mostly almost the entirety of his adult life, his long life, that he's in France from that early point, 1900, all the way through 1973, his death. That's a very long period. How did you break up this book in your mind while you you were writing it because I can imagine that there are all these different sections and segments of Picasso's life and history. Did you find that difficult, or or what was that process like? Yeah, um, it's a it's a very good question, uh, Jennifer. It's a very good question. Um, you know, art historians, are, as you know, break up through formalist elements. You see, the Cubism, the age of Cubism, and then Classicism, and then Surrealism. Right. So for me, it was more the the natural um, the natural ordeals of this uh, of this terrible twentieth century, in which Picasso survived two world wars, one civil war, one cold war, 
and many more, you know. And those crises, they were the traumas which really destroyed some of his artistic production. Let's let's take the example of, for example, let's take the example of Cubism. Between 1907 and 1914, Picasso um, produces or leaves his most extraordinary period of creativity because it is the time where he has been able to become a leader in the French avant-garde and, you know, and surpass Matisse, who is 11 years older than him, for reasons that we, got, we won't get into right now. And then, you know, it's, it's, it is Europe at the verge of collapsing with World War I. Okay, it's the old Europe. Picasso at that time, because he has antennas, because his intelligence lets him understand or feel what's going on in literature, philosophy, science, um, technology, industrialization, everything, everything. And he is like Hamlet on the border of the void, you see? And that produces those extraordinary years together with Braque, Picasso borrowing from Braque the idea of craftsmanship, and that's when he's able to do collages and so on and so forth. And what he does by distorting traditional figuration and distorting high art, you know, with low elements from craftsmanship, is something that only expatriates like him understand, or people like him who belong to many cultures. Who are they? They are the Steins, Gertrude and Leo Stein. Mm-hmm. It's Daniel Henri Kainweiler, who's a German Jew. This is Wilhelm Hude, who's a Prussian uh, critic. This is Vincent Kramer, who is a, a, a scholar from Prague and and is going to become one of his best um, uh, collector. This is Karl Einstein. You know, you name them. Why is it so that only people with plurality of cultures and expatriates like him understand what he's doing? And what is happening to this extraordinary production that Kainweile understands and sells all over Europe? He sells it in Prague, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, in the German Empire, in the Russian Empire, in the United States, except for France. (laughs) And what is happening to this extraordinary production when Picasso becomes extremely rich in 1914? It is destroyed by the war, by the xenophobia, by the fact that France has been at war with Germany, lost the war in 1871, and the fact by that that uh, Kainweiler is targeted as the enemy, the Bosch. So 700 of the most beautiful Picasso paintings from the Cubist period are going to be confiscated for 10 years. And that's a nightmare. And that's for him a total amputation. It's like losing an arm or losing a hand. You see what I mean? So that's how I created the different scansions of my book through traumas he endured and through the way and the way he he bounced back because his whole life is an odyssey. He's bouncing back nonstop. You see? Yes. Yeah. He's he's a survivor in in every sense of the word. No, totally. You you've got it right. There's more coming up next right after this break. Want to listen ad-free? Join Patreon for the cost of a cup of coffee. Visit patreon.com slash artcurious, and we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm so glad that you mentioned all of the other expatriates and other foreigners that shaped his life and were part of his circle. I was really curious about his status as a foreigner and how that affected his life and his work with other people from France. So you mentioned Brock. Did that alter his relationship in any way, uh, you know, his outsider status with people who he was close to who were from France? I mean, I don't think it did, but, you know, there are those kind of weak signals because I am very interested in microsociology in weak signals, you know, after all your life is made of weak signals, fine elements, you know, fine elements. I give you an, an example. In 1911, there's, okay, Picasso buys from the assistant of Apollinaire um, a sculpture, Iberic sculpture, three centuries. Oh, yes. yes that he needs to use for the Moselle d'Avignon and that he needs to touch and so He buys mm-hmm. the sculpture. Then it's discovered that the sculpture has been stolen from Le Louvre. Right. So Picasso is completely flabbergasted and, and doesn't know what to do. And he did not know, of course. So he, he Apollinaire calls him, Picasso comes back from the south and they walk a whole night around, you know, along the Seine and Picasso says, what do I do? And the panic is that Apollinaire is apatride, which means he has no passport, and Picasso is a foreigner. So the risk is simply that they be expelled. Right. So this is a weak signal. Another one, another one. In 1927, one of the friends, a surrealist friend called Louis Aragon, is being taken by the police because he wrote something very brutal, against the police and most writers and poets and painters put together a note which they ask to be signed by other poets and writers and painters to support Aragon. Now, one of them is called Paul Eluard. Paul Eluard writes to his ex-wife, Picasso, this bastard, didn't, did not want to sign to support Aragon. I heard that he asked his lawyer what a schmuck, something like that. <laughs> so what is behind that little note? It is the fact that Picasso does not dare signing because he knows he risks the expulsion again. Yes. And, but he doesn't tell anyone. He cannot, he cannot tell anyone. So what he endures is totally private, totally secret. And there is a heroic sign to that, you see? So... He, he he doesn't show. He doesn't he doesn't exhibit. He does not complain. He works. Still think that that's incredible. That forty years later he is still being denied uh, 
citizenship because that seems like that would, in my <laughs> illogical perspective, have been enough time to pass. But that is clearly was not the case. But that's the, it. It all came from the five, the first five, as I told you. You know, the first yeah. five, which was which was which was uh, constituted against him in 1901. You see. You mention in in your book that all of these different issues are bubbling up all around him and really are part of his entire life and, and career issues of from, belonging and identity and then that multiculturalism other, that you talked about. From Can we see examples he has, of those? He's always looking around. He borrows from literature. He becomes a poet. He steps into other fields which are not purely painting and sculpture, the noble arts. Mm-hmm. Basically, he explores. He spends his life exploring until the end. That's yes. what it is. You know, exploring. For example, at the end of his life, he becomes a ceramist in the city of Valoris yes. and explores ceramics in a way that as if he were a ceramist for 400 years BC in Greece or in, in the Roman times. So what is... Typical of Picasso is this obsession of exploring and enrich his art with all kinds of troves from all over. That's something that I very much admire about Picasso's career. Again, we keep talking about the longevity of it. He had such a long life and such a long active career. And he seems like he was never satisfied just to sit back and rest on his laurels. He seems like he was continually exploring and pushing himself and expanding. Yeah, no, no, that's not uh, the point of uh, resting of his laurels does right. not work at all with him. Absolutely. No, no, no. It's not an expression that would fit him at all. No, you know? Definitely he's, not. You know, he is he is a bully, you know. He is yeah. a he's a he's an engine. He's brash. He's uh, yes. he, he is inhabited. He is constantly producing constantly there's one he has one religion his art Hmm. and one single occupation you know his work simply and he's never satisfied and he's constantly discussing with Velasquez oh I like that that turn of phrase is great you have written as you mentioned you've written extensively about other artists and cultural figures you mentioned Leo Castelli but you've also done in-depth looks at Jean-Paul Sartre and also at Mark Rothko did your approach to writing about Picasso differ from the way that you approached other figures that you've written about in the past yeah yeah this is such a good question in fact not not at all my dear not at all i am i am three things First of all, I'm a poet, so I think that I, I write like a poet. Second thing, I am an investigative journalist. And third thing, I am an academic. Mm-hmm. So patch, I mean, tie them, the, the three of them together and you get Annie. I love investigation. I have things on Sartre that nobody else has discovered, like somebody who was the Sartre lover in New York. Nobody knew her name. Nobody, it was impossible. I found her and she became the, the hero of my book. I discovered that the city he quotes in in Nausea, his first novel, is not Le Havre that everybody thought, but the city where his father was born. What I do is I do field work. I work like an American investigator. I travel. I My hands are, are, are dark, you know. I I put my hands in the in the coal, you know. I, I, I work with my hands. I'm, I don't work behind a, 
behind a desk of I went, I go to the archives, I move, I move around. You see, I want to give you an example. Now, the first Picasso, which is his first masterpiece, 1905. Okay. Okay. So this during a whole year, 1905, he, he will paint exclusively people from the circus, you know, acrobats and saltimbanks and you know dancers and everything exclusively the the people on the margins the people who entertain the bourgeois this is the ones with whom he mingles that he identifies with 1905 exclusively okay now during the summer of 1906 he had just started the portrait of Gertrude Stein and he feels that he cannot go on he cannot finish the portrait because at the time Matisse and others are having a breakthrough with a fourth period, you know, at the Salon d'Automne 1905. Yes. But Picasso cannot, cannot rival with Matisse. He cannot, simply cannot. So he decides to leave Paris. And, and my take is that the pressure of being a foreigner at the time is too heavy. So he leaves. He goes to Barcelona and he asks a friend. The friend designs a place called Gozol. It's in 2,500 meters high in the Catalan Pyrenees. It's a tiny village, exclusively accessible through a mule, through, you know, when you go on a horse, a mule, a donkey, for yeah. 17 kilometers for two, two days. Wow. And in this village, this is a village of smugglers where the police until today never never came in. He, le he lived with the, the man who had the, the hotel there. There were 100 people in this tiny village only. And he left. He lived in the house of this man called Pep Fonvilla, 94 years old, the chief mm -hmm. smuggler. Mm -hmm. Within three months, Picasso is going to reinvent himself with many elements which play a role, including an Iberic statue in the village nearby, including the feeling that smugglers can find the ways into in the voice of a society to, to, to go where they want to go. And his representation of people and landscapes evolves into presenting them as icons. At, at a certain time of his stay, Picasso writes in a little notebook, a tenor, a tenor who, who, who sings the the highest pitch of the whole team, me. And he goes back to Paris in a rush, finishes the portrait of Gertrude Stein with, his, with her face being a mask, mm -hmm. and he breaks down to become the leader of Cubism. So that discovery, I only made because I spent two summers in Gozo, which no other art historian did, okay? Wow. I did it because I needed to, to leave their life, to yeah. understand their culture. So my book is very much an anthropology of Picasso. I love that. You're revealing whole new parts of him that I don't think I've ever seen before in any other books. But that's my, that's my, my, yeah, my investigation, you know, I love investigation, you know, investigations of the, you know, for example, did you ever read the letters from his mother? I'm the first one to, to ever open them and read them no. and, and actually, and actually require them. No, I've never seen anything like that before. So, you know, any foreigner, how do you, how do you know what he feels? You just know from the letters he writes to the family, you know, how he feels. 
I wanted to end our conversation today by talking, you know, one of the things that was interesting about this English translation is that it just ended up, it timed out with the 50th anniversary of Picasso's death. And so I think that allows a lot of us to be thinking about Picasso's legacy over this last half century. How do you think that we should be seeing Picasso now? Or what is his legacy for us 50 years on? You know, through my research, I discovered that next to the the overgifted artist, there is an, an immense political mind, an extraordinary political mind, that of a strategist, somebody who sees ahead, somebody who does not become a victim, somebody who constantly is aware of the power games around him, somebody who find solutions. And the the moral of the book, the moral of the Odyssey is that Picasso becomes a compass for us all, you know, because he's never a victim. He is always rebouncing. He's showing us the way. He's showing the way that foreigners can transform a society. When this man remained invisible in French Museum for more than 50 years, five zero, he had been a hero for Alfred Barat Moma, you know, in 1939, 1933. He was recognized everywhere except in France. Nevertheless, when in 1947 he was asked by the director of French museums if he wanted to, to, to give a percentage for the French museum to buy a few of his paintings, because he said, no, I will donate 10 of my paintings in the French state. And therefore, he became a vector of modernity for the whole country. He did not resent anything. He just gave, you know. I think this is this is spectacular. In 1955, he left Paris to the south of France. He never came back to Paris. He lived with the craftsmen. He he transformed them. He lived with young people. He, he learned from them. He They learned from him. And he created his empire in the sphere he has always belonged, which is the Mediterranean, you know, which is mine as well. So basically, he chose... He, he, he chose to live among the among the craftsmen of Valoris rather than with the French establishment, you know, in Paris. Finished. Annie, thank you so much for sharing all of this amazing information about Picasso today. I think this is a really fascinating book, and it is so chock full of things that I've never known about Picasso before. So I'm so thankful that you were sharing it with us today. Thank you so much. I, I I am thrilled. It was my first interview in the country. So, oh my goodness, wonderful! I'm so pleased. Thank you so much for joining me on Art Curious today. Wonderful program. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this bonus episode today. I loved Picasso the Foreigner, and so I highly recommend that if you get the chance, find this book at your local library or order it online. I've made it easy for you by including a link to bookshop.org and to Amazon in today's show notes. So do try and check that out. As always, I will be back with you soon with more bonus information, with episodes of Our Curious, and with news segments. So thank you so much for listening, for supporting, and I will see you soon. Stay curious.